Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Hi, Laurel. Hey, Jessa. I'm going to introduce our guest today. Yes. Today, we are here with John Hyatt of Mexico Business Consultants. How are you doing, John? I'm fine. How are you, ladies, enjoying quarantine in sunny Southern California? It's beautiful. You can see the sunlight on my face. And you're in... You're in North Carolina, right? Yeah. You, normally, I reside in Mexico City, but flew up to North Carolina to see family in late March and ended up pretty much getting stuck here. There are flights back and forth to Mexico City, but I'm not interested in going through airports anytime soon or being in a huge city. So I'm kind of stranded on the North Carolina coast for the time being. It's a good place to be stranded. Well, um, before we get started, Jessa, tell us how we met John. Yeah, so we met John. Um, we were actually looking for some information on manufacturing opportunities in Mexico. And we were originally, um, actually, our friend Kate, um, I knew she had some contacts with some manufacturers um, in Mexico and Tijuana, and I reached out to her. And she introduced me to um, Co-Production International. And when we started speaking to them kind of about the specifics, what the information we were looking for, that's how we got connected with John, who is uh, vice president uh, with them, with Co-Production. And that was about six months ago. And we, um, despite our best efforts, have stayed in touch. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then you ladies, even on... On a spur of the moment invitation, you booked a ticket to come to our end of the year Christmas to come to our Christmas party in Ciudad Juarez and meet Herman Dominguez, our other VP of Mexican Sourcing Operations, our VP of Business Development. So you really stepped up to the plate to want to get to know us and collaborate with us. So it's been a great partnership so far. At yeah. that time, it was like any opportunity we can to connect with people that we like. Like, yeah, we'll drop. We'll drop what we're doing and fly from Tijuana to Ciudad Juarez and meet some new people. Yeah. It was awesome. Now so, it's sorry, different. <laughs> sorry you had to go to Juarez. Nothing against Juarez, great people. But next time we said we'll do it in San Diego or on the North Carolina coast, right? Yeah, it sounds good to me. I mean, we do love Tijuana over here in San Diego because it's just a hop, skip, and a jump over the border. So um, you have an office in Baja, right? Or in It's in TJ. Yeah, so co-production's offices are in TJ. Uh, TJ in San Diego, and we also have the sourcing ops office with Herman in Ciudad Juarez, and then I am down on my little Mexico City island down there, which has worked well for me. I, per, from a personal standpoint, love living in Mexico City, and with some of the suppliers that we have to visit that are in and around Mexico City, or also if we have to get to Guadalajara or some of the areas of Baj uh, the parts of Bajio, which is like Guanajuato, uh, Leon, those areas and kind of the central part of Mexico. It's, it's called the Bajio, uh, literally. Um, I'm, I'm a quick 45 minute cheap flight. So it kind of works out well that I'm down there in Mexico City just doing my thing. <laughs> yes. Well, it was our plan. It was Jess's plan to come um, say hi to you in Mexico City before life changed. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I still don't know why I got that cancellation notice from YouTube, but I did. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, nothing to do with COVID. <laughs> yeah, I know. You just canceled. I was like, okay, well, my friends didn't come down. I regret that now, for what it's worth. I thought I was like, okay, I can't go there this month. I'll just go next month. No big deal. And uh, yeah, my friend uh, Jennifer, who's actually watching, um, you're going to go down. But next time, now when everything's back open and when you're back, we will make it a priority. I'll not take that for granted. Okay. Well, it's we're about selling. to start the rainy season. <laughs> so. Really selling it. Um, <laughs> so what are the reasons? I mean, obviously, Laurel and I enjoy talking to you quite a bit about a number of things. And one of the reasons that we wanted to host you on Orion is that a lot of clients that we work with have questions about manufacturing. And this was all pre-COVID. And so... Right the landscape I'm sure has changed a little bit or will be. And could you, I guess, give us an overview of um, some of the, I guess, key points of the supply chain that you would like to highlight with Latin America and Mexico and whether or not you want to take that kind of pre COVID and anything that you're starting to notice changes. I know that it's, it's a very nuanced and ongoing situation um, or evolving, I should say. So Yeah, I'll go pre-COVID. How about I go back to 1994? Is that okay? Um, January 1st, 1994, the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA, went into full play. Um, You know, tariffs were dropped all across the borders of all three countries. uh, And the ease of or the attraction of doing business uh, amongst people, amongst businesses in the United States, Canada, and Mexico with the other countries um, rose exponentially. And so a lot of manufacturing, really since 1994, American firms and Canadian firms have been very interested in doing business in Mexico, manufacturing in Mexico. Um, What happened is a lot of manufacturing migrated to Mexico throughout the 90s, uh, depending on depending on the overall industry, things like that, what people thought when NAFTA was going to go and when NAFTA went into play, you know, we heard all of these, these theories like Ross Perot. So there's going to be this giant sucking sound of all these jobs that went across the border. They were going to, you know, it was going to cause this desolation of the, uh, this uh, destruction of American manufacturing that didn't really happen depending on, depending on who you talk to what a lot of people, but, what a lot of experts thought was going to happen was Mexico was going to become more of a supplier of, of raw materials of tier one and tier two. Mm-hmm. And then OEM, uh, a lot of OEM manufacturing, which is for final assembly was going to be done in the U S and Canada since tier one and tier two, were going to be more lower skilled, things like that. Well, that's not really what happened. Really the tier one, tier two and OEM, it just kind of got scattered across the three countries. And then what happened in 2000, um, uh, I think it was 2000 or 1999. Sorry, my history is failing me. China, <laughs> joined, China joined the World Trade Organization. And when China joined the World Trade Organization, actually what happened is a lot of this manufacturing left Mexico and went to China. And really over the past 20 years, since me- since China has been gradually, in uh, the cost of manufacturing has been increasing and the overall attraction of doing business in China has been decreasing. This is pre-COVID, pre-tariffs, uh, pre, pre-Donald Trump. 
the, the interest in doing business in Mexico has always been increasing. You know, how can we get out of Asia? How can we get, get away from these six week lead times, four weeks on the water, all of that? How can we, you know, do business in our own backyard and take advantage of free trade and all of that? And so that's really what's happened up until 2017, 2018. And then the tariffs hit. And then it, once the tariffs hit, the attraction of doing business and manufacturing in Mexico and in the Western Hemisphere has grown even more. And then pre-COVID, uh, that's kind of where we were. Now with what's happening with the coronavirus is we're seeing from talking with clients and, and, and prospects that people are even more uh, determined to get out of Asia and into Mexico, and in some cases, not just Mexico, back into the United States for manufacturing mm-hmm. for a couple different reasons. One, because they just want to make their supply chain, well, for three different reasons. One, their supply chain, they just want it more nimble, and they don't want to be completely dependent on China. Two, I just had two discussions this morning about this on calls, that people are kind of irate with China, not to be politically incorrect, but people are kind of upset with China because they feel like China withheld the coronavirus uh, information from the rest of the world and that we're going through this because of them. I'm not going to get into those politics, but that's what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third the third reason is tariffs, as, or you could make it a fourth reason, the, the current trade war and now the, the new USMCA. There's a lot of evidence that the new USMCA is going to be better than NAFTA for all three countries, that it's going to facilitate uh, trade eat much more than NAFTA did. So that's kind of the timeline to 19, uh, between 1994 and now. Mm-hmm. Now, does that mean that everything can just leave China or Vietnam or Bangladesh or Taiwan and just that Mex- Mexico is going to be a fit? No, not necessarily. It depends on a lot of different things. So before, while so I don't just ramble, I'll let you guys take it from there. And as Laurel said, yeah. it was China. China joined the WTO in 2001. Yes. And to your point about there's like several reasons why we want to move supply chains um, onshore, if you will, in the North American region. Another reason um, that we're obviously thinking about during COVID is jobs, 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 jobs. Like we need to put people back to work and create jobs um, and revive our economy. It's sort of like COVID is a big reset button. Many economists have said like, okay, we're pausing, resetting. What do we want our economy to look like? And the local connection that we have that I'm working in right now is the Cali Baja economic region, which is San Diego, Imperial and Baja region and for every one job that's created in that region two are created ancillarily and so even i mean everyone i and i i assume and i know from experience that governments are going to go okay i'm going to streamline projects that create jobs and products that are produced locally because you know for one in the value chain for every raw material source in the U.S. that's refined in the U.S., that's manufactured in U.S. or Mexico or Canada, that is um, distributed to a supplier that it is given to the consumer in North America, that's sort of closing our loop and reducing those shipping times, the carbon footprint, and the reliance on offshore components right. of the supply chain. So that when something like this happens, it's not such a big um, shock. Right. And, but I like what you said, Laurel, most of it. Well, I liked everything you said, but also 
we're creating jobs in this hemisphere. And that's what people, that's what our clients are constantly telling us, clients, prospects, and just people I talk to in general in in the United States, Canada and Mexico, they say, look, we want to keep jobs here in this hemisphere. If I can't manufacture if I want to make, like I said, I think I gave you ladies the example the other day, these, uh, the case for these AirPods. Um, if right. I want to, which I think is silicon, but I'm not sure. If I want to ma- manufacture this uh, case and I can't manufacture it competitively in Wisconsin or Michigan or Alabama, most people are telling us, look, we'd rather create the job in Mexico and do business with our neighbors than have to go way offshore. And aside from the lead times that you're talking about, like you said, well, a job gets created in Mexico, a manufacturing jobs, you know, a manufacturing job, that's going to most likely create two extra jobs in the United States that, you know, the Asian supply chain may not have created back home. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's really important when we're in this this situation now where we're sort of in this new normal that everyone's adjusting to, that we be very thoughtful and mindful of our supply chain and where things are being sourced. I mean, um, the North America has incredible natural resources and raw materials, and we can be competitive on a global market. So there's a big push for us to start um, sourcing materials in North America, refining them here and producing them into the things we need. One one industry that I'm particularly focused on right now is batteries and the the um, push that California is likely to take to electrify our transportation system. And we have a lot of raw materials here in California that can produce those batteries, which brings me to my next question, John, the things that we can produce or source in America or North America aren't necessarily things that all of us in America, in North America can refine, manufacture, produce, and distribute. So for example, like, Maybe Mexico isn't um, the experts in creating batteries right now, but what are they the experts in manufacturing? Well, I, I don't I don't know if I want to use the word experts. I'll say mm-hmm. where I think Mexico is stronger. Mexico is stronger in certain certain metal and stampings. Just got off of a call uh, on metal stampings manufacturing from a company in California. Certainly, plastic extrusion auto parts, the auto supply chain. One of the most amazing things that most people don't realize about NAFTA and if there are are two successes of NAFTA, it's probably been the auto auto industry as well as agriculture. Pretty much those those industries in all three countries won, although there were sects that, you know, felt like they lost like certain corn farmers in Mexico and the dairy farmers in, in the United States felt like they didn't get access to the Canadian market the way they should have. And that's one of the things that the new USMCA addresses, but back to manufacturing, but back to the auto parts example, um, you can take a, a, just a part of your car, such as the steering wheel or such as uh, one of the seats in your car and in most cases, that call, that just that part, not the entire car, but just that part has crossed the U.S. Canadian Mexican border, but anywhere between eight and fifteen times before it became a final assembled car seat to be put into your to be put into your car. Wow. Um, so auto and and that's going nowhere uh, with with the new trade deal, obviously. So auto parts are huge. Also, a lot of a lot of furniture is big. Um, medical devices, especially in your neck of the woods in Baja California, 
Um, medical devices are huge. Certain electronics, there's even, we even had the talk last night and there's been a lot written that Apple may start to test certain, certain aspects of its product line in Mexico. And also that's in Sonora. Um, the, uh, the, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the electronics, um, also in Baja California, uh, excuse me, also in Ciudad Juarez, where other offices, there are a lot of medical device, medical devices being used, uh, being manufactured there. And that, that leads into another point. If you're interested in manufacturing in Mexico, you can't really look at it and say, well, again, going back to the iPods case, well, I'm going to manufacture the iPods case. I live in San Diego. I'm going to manufacture it in, you know, in TJ, or I live in El Paso. I'm going to manufacture in Juarez. That region may not be the best fit. Just like in the United States, a lot of most of the industrial manufacturing and a lot of it is still going on is in the, pardon the um, condescending or derogatory term in the Rust Belt. You know, there's still a lot of industrial manufacturing going on in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, upstate New York. So I I can't say that, you know, I, I want to manufacture a certain car part or steel beams or something like that and say, I'm going to do it in Texas. It may not be, the, it may not be the right fit. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of auto parts are being manufactured. There's a lot of, well, a lot of auto manufacturing is going on in Puebla. Also, I forgot to mention textiles in general, Te- Mexico yeah. is very strong in textiles, especially, uh, jeans. It, it can be very strong, but again, certain regions are going to be, uh, are, have certain strengths and, there are also regions in Mexico, like the far southern regions, that were not really touched by NAFTA and globalization, um, that haven't really industrialized. You know, those aren't, those just aren't going to be manufacturing grounds. So you have to be regionally conscious when you're looking at a country like Mexico. Yeah, and and to your point about being regionally conscious, um, supply chain experts are just conscious people in general because they. They fully understand the interconnectedness of the people, the places, and the things that are needed to produce a widget, to produce a thing. They're the experts on, okay, I have these relationships over here. These people are really good at textiles. This is how far it is away from this person. This is how long the lead times are. If I move it over here, I can get a shorter lead time, but maybe not as good of a quality product. So what's the optimal organization of the ecosystem so that I can produce that widget the cheapest way possible or the fastest way possible or the highest quality possible or whatever it may be. And now I'm thinking, okay, things have changed. We live in a new normal. Supply chain experts have to be even more thoughtful, even more strategic about where they're sourcing their goods because when a pandemic happens, a huge economic disruption happens, I want to be able to be probably physically closer to the to every component of my supply chain. Ideally, it would be like I'm just thinking of, of Southern California and San Diego in particular because that's where I'm sitting. It's it would be great if the raw materials from the earth, from the farm, are dug up here, are refined here, are made into the thing that goes into the car seat, that goes into the car, that goes into the American car, that gets distributed on American rails, that gets distributed to Mexico, wherever it is in North America. And so supply chain experts now 
I'm, I imagine they've got maps up on their wall and they're trying to reconfigure all their ecosystems and their networks to make it more optimal. Yeah, and we're gonna and, and things are gonna become more optimal, but let me say something else about China because there's all this China bashing going on right now. And you know, I, like I said, I didn't want to be politically incorrect in the middle in the beginning of the podcast and uh, in regards to people being upset with China. Look. China's going to main China is going to still be a manufacturing hub Asia in general they're not going anywhere supply chains are going to change overall and certain things are going to uh, are going to become stronger in this hemisphere but a lot of things are still going to stay over there we're working with a client right now that is going to have to import some components to Mexico from India to be able to get final assembly done so, mm-hmm. I mean, the days of everything being sourced locally or even in the Western Hemisphere are gone. That's, that's a dream world for all of us. I would love that, too. But I think you're going to see, like you said, Laurel, more overall consciousness of, okay, where can we get this? You know, maybe not at the, because everything over the past 20 years has been about price, 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 price. What's yeah. the and now I think what's going to happen when COVID, I don't think, I know, because I've had this conversation with so many colleagues and clients, is that when COVID-19 settles, what's going to go on in the boardrooms and in the C-suite meetings of U.S. companies over the, for the next couple of years, as well as Canadian companies, as well as companies all over the world, is how can we make our supply chain more nimble where we not necessarily with China, where we're not depending on certain components or certain overall or, or one country or one region for, you know, all of the all of the sourcing of one product. Mm-hmm. Now, executives and CEOs and business owners are realizing that it's dangerous to depend on just one country or one region, especially if it's very far away. Yeah. And so is this something that you have been hearing from at this point with manufacturers or the sourcers in Latin America? Are they seeing this as an opportunity to bring more business in? Are they acting on it yet? Well, I think you have to tap into the Mexican mentality right now. What Mexico is, it's due to have somewhat of an economic slowdown in the coming months and maybe the next year or two because of everything that's going on with COVID. And and, and a lot of the international media is kind of, is, is a little bit bearish on Mexico in regards to what's going to happen. So I would say some Latin American business owners are, are proactively looking to see, you know, who or, or to see where they can where they can react to this in a positive way and, and grow and be proactive and grow their business. I would say most just based on the Latin American mentality are kind of in a hold our money, wait and see type of, of type of mindset. Which is, uh, honestly, that's not Latin American. That's just economics 101. When there's economic uncertainty, firms tend to hold their money. And they tend to be, uh, they tend to just be cautious with their money. I mean, we're seeing in the U.S. now. I think what will happen after all of this, uh, the COVID-19, you know, kind of gets behind us, is I think Latin American manufacturers will kind of get back to, will try and get back to where they were. And then, you know, that's kind of where firms like ours come in. Then you're going to have more 
you're going to have more U.S. firms, Canadian firms say, please get me out of China. You know, please get me out of there as soon as you can. What can you do? And, you know, that's where we kind of serve as the intermediary coming between and helping helping the U.S. firm source correctly and ethically and competitively from a country like Mexico. That's great. So you highlighted where you come in. You're like a relationships person. You're the go-to guy who knows how to connect people with the resources they need to make their supply chain happen in Latin America. How did you get to this job? Like what led you here and why are you doing it? Well, can I, can I mention something else before you, before answering your question? I can't. No, no, Jessa. I'm just going to ignore I'm just going to ignore you. <laughs> okay. Um, and we'll get into this more later. You know, we're not just intermediaries where you know, someone contacts us from Des Moines and says, you know, I am importing, uh, you know, some piece of electronic equipment from China. Can you help me find a Mexican manufacturer? We don't just, we're not just matchmakers. We don't just point fingers and then just, and then take a commission and then jump out of the way. Um, Mexico does not work like that. And in, in as far as sourcing, sourcing is not a turnkey, is not a turnkey solution in Mexico. In all in pretty much all cases, even if the Mexican supplier is currently exporting even similar products to the United States, um, the Mexican supplier has to be developed and to become competitive and to become as productive as the U.S. importer wants them to be. Some of its culture, it's a lot of different factors. And so we're essentially consultants on the ground and we serve our clients getting Mexican suppliers, first of all, vetting out Mexican suppliers, locating them, making sure which ones do work and which ones are and aren't going to work. And then after that, getting them export ready, taking product specs, samples, drawings, and sitting down with the Mexican factory and holding their hand step by step by step by step. Uh, to get them ready until the products, uh, until, you know, shipments start leaving. Um, so next, your question, how did I get into this? Well, this is an hour podcast. So. <laughs> well, give me like the, give me like this the. Is, <laughs> this is the shortest well, conversation we'll ever have. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, well, back in, uh, I, I moved to Mexico City in 2008, simply, be, simply to learn more Spanish. I had lost a job in Charlotte because of the because of the crisis and ended up moving to Mexico City on a whim and did some freelance work down there for several years and kind of started through a few uh, through actually a few family connections started to kind of work in supply supplier localization sourcing actually in the textile industry and then got into some hardware and things like that um, then I kind of left that and then got into some other work from 2013 to 2017, I think it was. Yeah. And then decided and then just really saw the need as, as you know, the United States and Mexico, the, the economic relationship was growing more and more. And then just decided to go out on my own and start my own business. And that was in 2017. And really, Mexico Business Associates, I opened it in 2017 with the idea of offering a, 
a plethora of services for foreign companies wanting to do business in Mexico from sales support, market research, sales and distribution, translation services, um, cross-cultural consulting services, since I'm an author on the business culture in Mexico. And I still offer all of those services, but really over the past after the past over the past 24 months really since the trade war started now even more with covid-19 and some of the strategic alliances that uh, I've been able to make really 90 95% of my work or I'd say right now 100% is is manufacturing sourcing contract manufacturing in Mexico so you know I kind of got into this on an adventure start partly t- 12 years ago on an adventure to learn more spanish and then kind of learned how to source a bit in Mexico. And now the current geopolitical climate with COVID-19, it's kind of turned this into my career. Was that short enough? (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. Well, and I, just to give some perspective, because this is fascinating to, to us, you're an entrepreneur, you started your own business, this is what you do, it's your day-to-day. What are like the last three or your favorite three um, products you helped produce? I'm just interested in what entrepreneurs are out there doing and creating and what's getting manufactured in Mexico. I don't know if I had a favorite. Um, I did work. Uh, I did work last year quite a bit in agriculture for a large agriculture client, and I really loved that project simply because I like the idea of fresh fruit coming from Mexico to the United States in our off season. And that's one of the things about about NAFTA and now USMCA that you know a lot of people don't realize. You think well, you think now if you're in the states and you think NAFTA was a bad idea. Well, stay out of your produce section in the grocery store from you know November through May because you're probably, you're probably eating Mexican fruit and vegetables. Almost everything is from Mexico. So, so John, I have to I have to interject and say, you know, we were talking about 2008 and the crisis, and that's why you lost your job in Charleston. That's when I was doing my senior thesis in college on NAFTA because I was I studied economics at University of San Diego, and my thesis was NAFTA and the effects on corn. And how its negative externalities were like the the environmental impacts of genetically modified corn. So it's so funny that you're like, oh, I really loved the agribusiness portion and about produce and everything because that was in 2008 and things have changed. Like our produce has changed significantly and in people's understanding of what what kind of produce comes from Mexico and what environmental laws are down there and how does that translate to what we what we eat it's just it's such an intricate complicated fascinating system so what kind of produce were you working was it all produce was it like avocados with that client in berries specifically Um, we were working in strawberries blueberries blackberries and raspberries so um that that was a lot of fun and yes you're right I, i mean well, I don't know where to begin. I know what you're talking about, about the genetically modified corn, because now, and that's one of the things I talk about, I, I would call it possibly a, a downside of NAFTA, um, mm-hmm. is a lot of Mexican corn farmers. It, it depends on which study you read, but, yeah. um, you know, Mexico still has, has a, a somewhat strong corn industry, but a lot of the corn in Mexico now just gets dumped in from places like Iowa and Nebraska. 
um, because the, it, in part because Mexicans can Mexican small Mexican farms cannot compete with the large corporate farms and the farm subsidies in the United States. So that's a conversation next time we're at the bar, and then you and I can slug it out. Yeah, I mean that was a long time ago. So like I'm definitely not on the up and up with the data, but Well, I'd like to read I'd like to read your thesis though. Oh um, god no. That was that was wait now. I mean yes. Excuse me? I'll send it to you, but no judgment. <laughs> Um, I, I did. And what other uh, what other products have, have I enjoyed? Um, I I did a, a textile uh, research project a couple of years ago on uh, based on jeans, and I really enjoyed that. And don't not really sure why, but just really enjoyed the idea of overall of apparel. And one of the one of the more interesting projects I did was. Um, a couple of about a year ago and we still get inquiries for this it was it was sourcing new it was sourcing like medicinal almost new age products for a client in southern california things like um white sage as well as um we're sourcing abalone shells and incenses uh, it was just it was really interesting it was a it was a challenge. I wanted to bang my head in the wall several night for several weeks straight, but we eventually got where we needed to, and he was happy. So those were probably some of the more in, those were some of the more interesting projects uh, that I was in, that I was involved in. A lot of the industrial projects, to be honest, Germán up in Juarez kind of takes that bull by the horns, and a lot of that I, he just does what I I just do what he says. And then I, he does what I say, and as far as business development, because I'm more <laughs> business development, he's more ops. So that's so fun. We pu- we pull each other around by the ears. <laughs> and um, one one term we haven't used yet on this podcast that I think our listeners are interested in is maquiladores. And walk maquiladores. Walk us through what that term means, what it is, and where you come in, and and what that means for Mexico sourcing. I don't really. I personally don't work that much with the Maquiladoras. The Maquiladora program was actually started, I think, in the 1950s. Um, so, you know, that's that's something people should know is that manufacturing, the economic relationship in regards to manufacturing in between the U.S. and Mexico, um, it didn't begin with NAFTA or anything. I mean, there was still a lot going on. There was still a lot going on beforehand. But... The, I think Herman could probably answer could answer that question better. But the Maquiladora program was essentially, and and it still exists in a similar way, where certain where aspects of products or components of products are put together on one side of the border and then shipped to the other for final assembly. And that's essentially this is still the the main way the main way that that things work. Or that components, or I think in a lot of cases, certain components are shipped from the United States and then final assembly. And this is often more low-skilled manufacturing, low-tech manufacturing. And then final assembly is done from Mexico and then they're shipped back across the border. So, but honestly, we don't we don't specifically work that much in Maquiladora uh, operations. Right. And so, John, with, I know you work with a few different companies are there given the I guess diversity of regions in Mexico as far as 
um, sourcing and manufacturing. Are there certain industries that you prefer to work with that you're better suited to help or can just anybody come to you and you'll figure out how to connect no, them with the right contacts? No, definitely not anyone can come to us and we're going to solve their problems. That's like, that's like saying you go to your general uh, physician and he or she can just take care of anything. And like I said, certain projects are just never going to be fits for Mexico. And we turn mm -hmm. down a lot of projects for a lot of different reasons. The main reason we turn down projects is that us and the, the prospect or the client just aren't on the same page. The, the client is determined that Mexico is going to work like China, that they're not going to have to develop factories and suppliers, and that this is going to be a turnkey solution. And they're saying, no, 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 no. We'll pay you, and we're, you're just going to put us in touch with a factory, and we're going to take care of everything. Or, uh, and, and we just try and explain that's not what we do, and that's not the way Mexico works. That's the main reason is just the lack of understanding of Mexico's business culture and its manufacturing ecosystem um, is, is the main reason we turn down, um, pro turn down projects. The second reason why we turn down projects is just because Mexico is not going to be a fit. It's either not going to be competitively made in Mexico, and in many cases we have to tell people, Look, we really appreciate you calling us, but you're going to be better off paying these tariffs right now, these 25% in China. Now, I know that COVID-19 is another X factor, but they they we have to tell them they're going to be better off paying these tariffs because Mexico is just not even going to come close to China. Because, for example, Mexico is not a raw material producer. If all of the if all of the if if most if it's a, a pure raw material product or just a, a, like a metal component in certain cases, mm -hmm. like the Chinese are just going to be more competitive. They have more capacity. That's another thing. And looking at volumes, depending on your volumes, Mexico can be a good volume producer, but if you just have astronomical volumes, depending on the, depending on the product, China may be a, a better fit for you. I mean, we have to look in, we have to be honest, China is what 1.3 billion people, uh, and Mexico is 130 million. So China's obviously going to be able to produce more in most cases. And like I said, with raw material, if the raw, most raw, a lot of raw material gets sourced in China. And if it gets sourced and can be manufactured efficiently in China, Mexico might not be able to compete. And in other cases, why we turn down pro pro projects because Mexico is not going to be a fit is simply there are no factories in Mexico with that with with such a capacity. We got a call from Arizona a couple of months ago with from a lady who was just eager and she was so ready and she had she had actually already bought my book and found us online and everything and she was already reading it and she was like I'm so ready to go in Mexico. And she manufactured chandeliers in India and China and we just had to tell her. We looked at it, we looked at her product line, we said this just isn't going to work for Mexico. It's just there's there are no factories that do chandeliers. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could possibly take suppliers and try and turn them into chandelier suppliers. I mean, but this was going to cost this woman hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, and what and was her motivation? Like, like was her purpose to just reduce a carbon footprint and create jobs in Mexico because she loves the neighbor? Like, what was her driver? 
I think it, yeah, I think it was that and just do be closer to home and get out of China. She was working China, India, and Taiwan. And she was just really, and you know, so many people on the border states specifically, they really have, uh, you know, I get this a lot when people from Arizona, New Mexico, California, and Texas uh, contact us. They, they really have, uh, they really have a love for Mexico. They, they, you know, they, it's, it's endearment. They really want to do business with their neighbors. They have no ill will towards Mexico. They know it has problems. And this woman, they, they were so passionate, but you know, again, we couldn't help her. I wasn't going to charge her six months of fees to laugh at her on the way to the bank. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I mean, at first, before I got into um, supply chain management, understanding all those components, I would, you know, I live in San Diego. We can see Tijuana from where we live. And I work in Imperial Valley, which is like, I can see Mexico through the window. And I just have this draw. Like, I want to create jobs for them. I want us to work together. I want to produce things there. Like, we are one, like, economic kind of heartbeat over here. And I think a big takeaway that I've learned by working with you, John, is that it's not not everything can be done wherever you want it to be done. It's very site specific, but just like anything really. And I just had this dream of like, Oh, we could do whatever we want to do over here. And it's like, well, maybe, maybe in the future. Yeah. Maybe in the future. But like, I think Americans, uh, despite all the bad press and, and all of some of the hateful things that have been said about Mexico, over the last several years, but I think a, I think a lot, or even most Americans, they they have a romanticism towards Mexico. The beaches, the tequila, the food, the men and chocolate. senoritas, and all of that. The chocolate, Oaxaca, the ruins, um, all of that stuff. It's just like think of all the think of how many country music songs, specifically in country, but it just across the board. How many songs do we have in American pop culture that are about Mexico? Uh, I mean, it's just, excuse me? A lot. (laughs) Jimmy Buffett has like 20. Johnny Cash. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, how, you know, so I think there's this romanticism toward Mexico amongst most Americans, and they just feel this (laughs) endearment toward Mexico. And again, they want to make it work, and in many cases... As a manufacturing ground, Mexico uh, Mexico can work. Uh, it just has to be done. It, it has to be the right fit. And to be honest, there there's a lot of heavy lifting in Mexico that doesn't need to be done in China. Yeah, I think Laurel and I definitely fall into that category that you're describing, and that that's ultimately how we were introduced to you. And you told us exactly what you just said. You tell people <laughs> when it's not going to work out in the best interest for either of us. And so I think but for us, work out, you can still go to Cancun, you can still go to Oaxaca, you can still tour pyramids. You, I mean, there's still a lot of culture down there. We can still get yeah. our dogs from Rosarito. Right. Yeah. So we've actually had some clients, we've had some clients call us say, can you set this up so we go to Mexico during the day of the <laughs> dead? That's when we want to visit the factories. So there you go. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's our office mascot, Roxy, in the background. She hears because us talking that, about Mexico. So, because on a on a cultural standpoint, that's I, I'll always remember the story when I was in Guadalajara, um, about fifteen years ago. Because I first studied 
Spanish in Guadalajara in 2005 as an undergrad in an exchange program. And I was helping a, a Guadalajara businessman there with some, with some trans with a freelance translation. And um, I told him he had lived in San Francisco for some time. And I told him, I said, you know, it's amazing when I see you, when I walk through Guadalajara, I see more Starbucks, I see more American chains. All of the kids have their iPods everywhere. These were the days of iPods. You're listening to our music. You're watching, you know, you're watching NFL, uh, all of this. I said, you're, you're becoming more like us every day. And this businessman smiled at me and he said, yes, and you're becoming more like us. And I never forgot yeah. that. <laughs> I never forgot that what that man said to me because he was exactly right. Mexico, from a cultural point of view, is becoming more like the United States. They're not losing their traditions. Day of the Dead and is getting bigger and bigger and becoming more of an international phenomenon as well. Um, they're not losing their traditions per se, but while you know they're adopting more of our cultural practices. Think about all of the girls in the United States, that, especially in the border states, that want quinceañeras when they turn 15. Um, how big the Day of the Dead is becoming in the United States. Uh, things like that. More Americans are interested in traveling to Mexico and learning. American students are interested in learning Spanish. Um, you know, we're becoming more like them. They're becoming more like us. And that's, you know, that's not going to stop. That's only going to be perpetuated by the current... Uh, Geo medical forces that are geopolitical, <laughs> <laughs> geopolitical geo and medical forces. I'll say. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the future looks like for the border towns in terms of manufacturing and industry? Like, do you see that TJ and like Mexicali and Juarez and other places like that are going to have more economic activity as we become more open? Oh yeah, there's, the, there's absolutely the, no question about it. No question okay, about good. it. Like I said, I don't deal specifically that much in Maquiladora stuff. That's mm -hmm. more Herman because he's more in the ops. But absolutely, the 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 border the border cities are going to continue to grow. You're going to see more manufacturing, and my hope is like I gave with the example I gave with the car seat. You're going to see things going back and forth from you know from TJ to San Diego, TJ to LA, or other uh, other uh, facilities in Southern California. Uh, or to Arizona, from Juarez to El Paso, and parts and 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 you know the supply the supply chains are going to just become even more integrated. And we, you know, we see that on on the San Diego side, we're just an hour south from North America's busiest port of entry in LA, and we're just twenty minutes north of the world's busiest land border crossing. And like I said earlier, that fact about for every one new job created in that Cali Baja economic region, two ancillary jobs are are created. Right. And so you can in and our our mayors in the city of San Diego worked on the bridge that connects um, San Diego to the Tijuana airport. So you don't actually drive across the border or walk across the border. You go over this bridge straight to the airport. And I I think that's that's making us more interconnected. Maybe the CBX. Yeah, through CBX is rad. It, right. it makes everything so more, much more interconnected. And I see us, the more that Amer Americans and Mexicans can participate in each other's lives, the more we can 
um, enhance our economic development together and make things more optimized and faster and more resilient in the face of a big pandemic like this. Right. Not only the the port of the port of entry that you mentioned, but I I think if uh, I was in a keynote and I should know that I was in a I was in an event a couple of weeks ago where the speaker told us in Mexico City and I should all know all of this by heart, but I think it is the the border crossing in Laredo. I'm not sure it's the it's the busiest point of entry on earth. There is no uh, I think. The, the economic activity between Mexico and the United States is greater than I think the, uh, the numbers four through six uh, in between the United States and something like that. Uh, the, the economic activity between our two countries, it, it is the most important economic border on earth. This is not, this is not a, an economic relationship. That is going to be that is going to be stymied or slowed down uh, because of a trade dispute or something else. That the amount of goods and as well as human beings that flow across the U.S.-Mexican border legally every day is absolutely mind-boggling. It's just like this speaker put it: "We are not neighbors; we are roommates." Um, and we're not roommates in an apartment. We're roommates stuck in a freshman dorm room with bunks on top of each other. Um, <laughs> we're that close. Top bunk for the U.S. But I guess. The, um, <laughs> um, have you seen, okay, so kind of bringing this a little back to where we're at today in the life of COVID. And like you mentioned earlier, I think just, just fears that people have in general about like fears and mistrust, I think that are arising from all of this, um, especially with China kind of as the, the forefront of the virus outbreak. And have you already experienced people coming to you to your business seeking to, I guess, reshore, is that the right word, reshore to North America for manufacturing? Like, has that already happening or even the last like three months when this all started to happen? Because I would assume people are going to be more hesitant to travel and probably some, no, it's, some it started bias. Happening, like, it started happening when COVID hit China and it's mm -hmm. continued happening okay. just by Zoom and phone since it's been in the United States. No, but I, I'm on calls every day with the same plea, get me out of China. Mm. Now, some companies are not willing to write checks to move forward until this all ends, which I mm -hmm. completely understand. A couple of, we we have a couple, several statements of workout that, you know, the, the VPs have said, look, we're ready to go. We want to just get this. We want to wait until everybody can get back to the office and, Houston or in Kansas City or wherever so before we before we get going with this but yeah I mean the inquiries are still coming in yeah because, I was wondering right. that like how eager people were to to make a change now or if it was like kind of earlier when you're talking about like just a hold and wait and see approach no they're ready to make the change like I said, some of them may not want to to actually flip the switch until COVID, until the full, uh, until the mm -hmm. whole 
business cycle or the economy reopens, which is understandable because companies are, you know, not are wondering how they're going to pay their employees, how are their sales going to go and things like that. But no, people are actively still wanting to get out of Asia and re near shore. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that, about the increase in activity um, because of COVID or seemingly because of COVID. Right. Thought it, it was more when it was in China, when the Chinese supply chain mm-hmm. was disrupted. But uh, now you're seeing it steady. And like I said, we our prediction is that once things get under control, that's when we feel like people are going to get very, very serious. Okay, we've got to. And again, it doesn't mean you get out of China completely. You know, a lot of people say, well, I want to. And pe- sometimes people call us and they say, I've got a, okay, take, here's our catalog. And they send us a 50 page PDF and say, we want to, we want to send up, we want to stop manufacturing all of this stuff in Asia and manufacture it in Mexico. We say, whoa, I mean, this is, you know, like proposing on the first date. That's not how this works. Um, you know, we need to take, do you not like my analogies, Laurel? I mean, maybe maybe I've been proposed to on the first date. I don't know. I don't know. Um, So, you know, there, there is sometimes this over aggressiveness that we'll get and people will say, you know, get us, take it all out of China. And we say, no, 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 that's just not the way this is going to work. We're, you know, you would have to hire a sourcing office of 200 people in Mexico and have people have us manage it, you know, to try and do something like that. You know, let's start with the low-hanging fruit. Let's look for, uh, you know, your top five product lines that we think we could migrate to Mexico, and then let's go, you know, step by step. Great. Um, Yeah, thanks for that. And a few things, and we're getting towards the end of the hour. I wanted to – this is our first live stream, and so I'm going to change up a few little things. We're still going to put this out on our podcast world for those who – weren't able to attend live, but I want to put this out there for anyone currently watching live stream. If in the comments, if you have any specific questions, um, feel free to post a comment and we will have John answer it. Or if you have anything for Laurel and me too, we, uh, we're happy to talk all day. (laughs) Do I have to answer now? (laughs) Well, we'll see if it comes up. Yeah. We'd love to put you on the spot and see if you really know what you're talking about. My steak just got here, Jessa. Yay! <laughs> no, I'm so, just Jessa, I was t- tell them the story, Jessa, about about my steak that's coming from California to North Carolina. You said you'd only appear um, as a guest on our podcast if we shipped you some premium California beef. No, 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 no. I told. <laughs> so, John, we were talking about being on lockdown and quarantine. What we're doing, and John is being in North Carolina. Was telling us about all the meat. He has been grilling and North Carolina barbecue. And then the same day, I think I'd, there's this seaside market in Cardiff, North County, San Diego, has something called Cardiff Crack. And it is this burgundy pepper marinated tri-tip that is just so unbelievably delicious. It is so good. And... And so the locals started calling it Cardiff Crack, and now the store calls it that because it is a- addictive. And so anyway, a seller co. graciously shipped out John 
some Cardiff crack from California so he can enjoy North Carolina. Um, no, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's here. So it should um, be. I'm today look or tomorrow. To that. So keep us posted and you can send thank you cards, email LinkedIn. We will accept them. And multiple. No, I told you I'll pick you up at the airport when y'all come to North Carolina, and you can That's spend, right. a, weekend, yeah, you can spend a weekend out here on the beach. It's a very yeah. quiet island, so we want to go handicrafting on the the international. What is that? The canal, the water, the IC, the ICW, the international, the international, uh, the intercoastal waterway. Intercoastal. It's a waterway. Most people, most people on the west coast don't realize this. All the way from the Gulf Coast of, I think it even goes up to. Mississippi and uh, Alabama, all the way around down Florida and all the way up to Maine, there's a waterway about a half a mile wide that hugs the coastline that's for shipping, but it's also for recreation, recreational boating and things like that. Like I was out there the other night in the kayak. Yeah, that's awesome. We got to get the hammercraft out there and we'll stand up paddleboard our way. Oh, the hammercraft. Yeah, you told, oh, the thing you sent me, I sent that to my brother and he's interested in getting one. Oh, that's fantastic. I think, um, I think we've got some more comments rolling through here, which is awesome. I'm loving these live comments. Yeah. This is great. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Enrique, I agree with you, John. Some China to Mexico reshifting will be gradual and may take some time as companies rethink right. their supply chains and create alternative sourcing and risk mitigation plans. Right. And what we always try and do with the client when they say, hey, we want to get everything or as much as we can out of China, we say, okay, give us your top 10, your top 20 products where China is killing you the most, either by tariffs or supply chain risk or whatever. And then from those tops, we're going to come up with you know the top three to five or whatnot that we where that are going to be sourced the most the most competitively and quickly out of Mexico and like we say let's grab the low hanging fruit first and then keep growing together we see our clients as partners it's not about me yes we're here to make money but we want us to all grow together and develop long term relationships yeah it's truly regenerative you're creating state you're creating value for everybody that touches and is impacted by your business and you want to grow together you're not just in to make like a short-term quick dollar and turn everybody around you're focused on these long-term relationships right and someone asked um Michelle collins says michaela michaela sorry <laughs> reading is, is a challenge Mexico? for all of us uh, no me? chicago illinois no, but she asked, She asked, is this a worry for Mexico at this time or oh, the U.S.? Sorry. How do we protect regions that are viewed as optimal for natural resources, raw materials that are in high demand? That's more a question for you two, I think. No? Yeah, I can do one of those. Yeah, and she expands upon it. So, for example, in the United States, there are these raw materials or resources or minerals that the federal government has identified as critical to the functionality of our economy and our, you know, even NAFTA and everything as a global supply chain of these critical minerals in the world. Um, One I can speak about very in particular is the lithium that is used to produce those batteries I was talking about earlier. Normally they were produced in, well, lithium is mined in South America and Australia, and basically it exists in this salty water and they evaporate the salt out and the lithium is mined. And then it gets shipped 
to China in whatever quality form they have it. It gets shipped to China to be refined. And then it goes from the refinery in China to the battery producer in China. And then those batteries get shipped out globally. Well, one way that we've been able to um, contribute to sustainability and regenerative practices and create value for our people on the North American side is by finding those sources of lithium in America and through that process, we've actually found that in Southern California, near the Salton Sea, it's now called Lithium Valley, where there's a massive underground source of lithium. And it happens to be, like I said, at the Salton Sea area, which has a lot of geothermal activity. So the projects out here are proposing to use that renewable geothermal energy, which has like incredibly low emissions, like basically zero, um, to mine the lithium underground. So no pools does not does not no water gets evaporated out so they're mining for lithium in a closed loop system and it's employing all these people over here that are in a disadvantaged community the we had a out here in um, imperial county there was like a 28 percent unemployment rate before covid so now we're looking at like 48 50 percent unemployment rate and so the goal here is to source the raw materials locally using sustainable renewable energy with a very low carbon footprint and co-locate as much of the manufacturing we can here or in our neighbors so that the carbon footprint of the supply chain is much more reduced. And it, again, it keeps the jobs in America and North America and keeps them going. So everybody's looking at this differently. Um, and and to another point is that when we produce the batteries in America, they get put in battery in uh, American made cars and that electrifies our transportation system, which creates more jobs for people to construct the infrastructure for these electric vehicle charging stations and also helps California meet its climate goals. So it's this very, and I'll touch on another point is that LA and New York City are seeing significant air quality improvements amid COVID because nobody's driving. And they can literally look out their windows and see topography they haven't seen in decades. They can see the mountains, they can breathe cleaner. Asthma problems are much, much less because of the air quality improvements. And so everyone's thinking, oh, electrifying our transportation is an air quality improvement. And that's a true like closed loop regenerative cycle where we're seeing that when you make a sustainable supply chain that's locally sourced, you can have ancillary co-benefits like air quality improvements that lower our healthcare costs. And I don't know what that looks like, like to your point earlier, John, like Mexico isn't great at producing batteries right now. They're just not competitive on the global market, but maybe in the future, if we see the benefits of this, maybe there's going to be some cities in Mexico that go, yep, I'm going to be a, I'm going to manufacture batteries competitively and it's going to be local. And this is what we're going to do. What I'm thinking is Mexico has cities, not just Mexico city, Mexico city is not even the worst. Um, I think Guadalajara, Monterrey and several other industrial cities in the North have some of the worst air pollution in, um, in Mexico. Maybe some of that, maybe, you know, some of that movement spills over into Mexico, even if it's not manufactured in Mexico, and, you know, it cleans up air quality in places like Mexico City and Monterey. Yeah, and I think to Michaela's question about, like, how does that conserve resources and is the optimal use of labor? Um, I mean, I, I live in the world and live by the FOMA that the closer to local you can make it, while it might be more expensive in the short term, like if you're looking at your a quarterly return or a yearly return, it might be more expensive now to move things on shore. Like, and, and like you said, there's some high costs of maybe training new people to do it. Maybe factories need to be um, renovated mm -hmm. to 
thing. There's a whole lot of cascading, but in the long run, if you look at it from a more long-term basis, we'll be more resilient in the face of an adversity. We're creating jobs locally. We're more connected. The carbon footprint's reduced. There's all these negative and positive ex externalities that we can quantify or qualify that contribute to positive quality of life improvements. Well, and I, not even mentioning life improvements in regards to cost, and I know we got to wrap up. That's one thing I didn't mention about manufacturing in Mexico that I, I think I spoke with you two about yesterday. You know, a company may come to us wanting to manufacture, you know, a piece of furniture in Mexico. Mexico can be very strong in furniture as well. Um, we're hoping to get some new business in, in, uh, in that field. And so they want to manufacture the furniture in Mexico and, you know, Mexico comes back and we negotiate with the factory on the client's behalf and they come back and, and we've, we've broken down the, um, the, we've, uh, we've broken down, you know, all of the costs to see where the factory may be off because that's one of the things that we do. Um, a, an overall cost a, a cost analysis to be, where me, a Mexican supplier may be sourcing their raw material from the wrong place and they can get it more competitively or they can they they could be running the factory in a more competitive way just all sorts of things and we find out just rock bottom Mexico is going to be even with tariffs Mexico is going to be landed in their warehouse in Dallas let's say or in Chicago it's going to be a container of this product is going to be landed in their warehouse 15% more than China. Well, you know, a, a lot of purchasing managers would say, well, you, you know, no, we got to stay with China. It's all about prices, 15% more. Aside from all you, what you said about the convenience and the environmental impact, when we get to talking with the VPs and the C-suite, they're not looking at that 15% difference. We have to, we, you have to factor in what's called the TCO, the total cost of ownership. The total cost of ownership is not when you just look at landed cost. You have to look at the cost of managing everything in Asia of those, you know, of those 15 hour flights. And if you're flying executives back and forth, you're having to fly in business class, which is maybe a four to $10,000 flight. When in Mexico, you can be back in for, you can be back and forth for $300 and have to stay two or three days. Asia, you're there a week. You have to look at your warehousing costs for, you know, uh, these long lead times in, out of China. You maybe have to order two or three FCLs at a time. And then that increases your warehousing, wa warehousing costs where you're sitting on material. And, you know, when you're ordering from Mexico, you may be able to take a half a container at a time. You know, those are, that's, that's all this huge ball of wax and what you're talking about too, this decision you have to make, Laura, I know you're more the environmentalist than I am. Uh, and, and I'm more thinking as the capitalist, uh, but you have to, you have to factor all of this in. It has to be a holistic approach. You can't just look at, oh, well, the price is cheaper in Asia. We'll just stay over there. Yeah. And I think you touched on like the very key point that brings us all together is like, we think that capitalism is a good thing and stakeholder capitalism or regenerative capitalism is the future because it just like you said, looks at everything holistically. So just environment support portion, profits a portion, people are a portion, but holistically together, what's that story? And that's when the C-suite decision makers go, this is what I want. I, I right. am well-informed. I make this decision for cultural reasons, for um, the future of my business, for ethical, whatever it may be. Once they have that whole picture, then they make the decision.
Right. That's why sometimes I hate to say this when purchasing or product managers calls call us, it's very trying to get on an initial console with them because they just they're just like, what's the price? You know, there's a and it's not their fault because that's what they're trained to do. That's their job. But you can't look at Mexico from just a price standpoint. Right. And um on that note, I think that's great information to have. And we kind of um, we try to keep this to an hour because we yeah. consistently get, get feedback that an hour is about the attention span people have. And Did I talk too but, much? <laughs> no, it's great. It's your supposed to talk for an hour. Um, uh, we appreciate it. But um, as on Orion, we always close out with a three-point landing. But really quick before we do that, I just want to, um, you know, you mentioned your book earlier that you published about doing business in Mexico. And I just want to bring that up because we have the uh, screen share option. We have these very high um, profile uh, production features now. (laughs) And so uh, Mexican business culture essays on tradition, ethics, entrepreneurship, and commerce and the state. And that's available on Amazon. Um, I highly recommend getting it on Kindle the steel at $9.99 and you don't have to worry about the logistics and shipping constraints. And it's less less carbon footprint on Kindle, right? There you go. (laughs) We'll make an environmentalist out of you in no time. Unless you want to sign. If you want a signed copy, then you got to connect with John on LinkedIn and make him do it. (laughs) That's right. And have the LinkedIn.com and it's under John T. Hyatt. So with that, John, can you give us three key takeaways for our listeners to kind of summarize and button up the last hour? Um, I think the, the first main one is, you know, like I said, so many people are trying to get out of Asia, namely China right now. The first just general theme is just Mexico from a manufacturing standpoint and as far as the whole ecosystem and everything, um, it's not going to work exactly like China. If you're expecting it to work like China, then stay in China, save yourself and the Mexicans a bunch of headache. Um, to be honest, uh, it's just, it's simply, it's, it's like, it's just a completely different marriage. It's like, you're trying to divorce your wife because this, or you just got divorced and you know, you're dating, you're, you're, you're wanting to get into a new relationship and you're expecting the new relationship to be the exact same as it was when you met your, when you met your former first wife, when you were in the honeymoon, uh, stage of things that's the that's the analogy i can give you give you it's just not going to work um like china at all um the second thing is mexico is going to take a significant amount of time in regards to manufacturing this overall time and heavy lifting it is going to take some upfront investment uh, of, of time and capital to get to get things done right and I think the third thing to to close with a positive after kind of sewing those two points together, if you do, and like we've talked about and like several people have commented, um, you know, things like I think Enrique commented, not everything is going to work for Mexico. But if you do have a possible winner of a product or product line for Mexico, 
you know, if you are willing to manufacture and do things and do your homework and, and invest in the heavy lifting up front, and you're willing to expect to respect the local culture and, you know, just the overall pro business protocol in the country and the way things work in the manufacturing culture, and you're willing to do that with an open mind and, and then Mexico can be an extremely profitable, long-term symbiotic relationship for you and Mexico in regards to manufacturing. Here, here. Great wrap up. Loving the ticker. Great job, Jessica. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, John. I hope your first Orion experience was a good one. I'm sure we'll have you back. <laughs> no, it was great. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I always enjoy chit-chatting with you two. Jessa and Laurel are just kind of, they're both, for all of you out there, they're both a riot to be around or to talk to. And they're the kind of people that like, I have a five minute call with, and then it turns into an hour because we're just cutting up and laughing. <laughs> and next thing you know, some steaks are showing up at your door. <laughs> right. That's right. So All send right. it, Jessa. Thanks for listening and visit astellar.co. That's A-S-T-E-L-L-A-R.co for reference materials from the podcast and to connect with Jessa and Laurel. Foxhole Studios specializes in audio production and can work remotely to meet your audiovisual needs whether you live in San Diego or not. Getting a podcast started? Contact the team at info at foxholestudios.com for any and all inquiries.